just went for a two-minute two walk, literally, outside in, in the beautiful light, and uh, wandered into the little church and the, the graveyard there, <clears throat> the old graveyard. Uh, and just this sense with the gravestones and the markers of death, the markers of our mort- mortality, and if we can open ourselves to the awareness of the finiteness of our existence, and the brevity of our time on earth, and the uncertainty of that, and that we don't know how long we have, when, when our death will come. And you have this period of existence from birth to death, and opening oneself to that, being, allowing oneself to be open to that. And sometimes in that openness, some questions uh, are so deep in their necessity and their insistence. And one is, how do I want to live? Really deeply. How, how do I want to live? This, this span that I have, that I don't know how long it will be. How do I want to live? And central, of course, to that question is, is how am I loving? What the heart's relationship with love? <clears throat> and if we individually, um, w- with spacious, if we have a bit of space in relationship to our existence in our life and look at ourself and look at our life without judgment, without judgment, uh, and looking also at humanity, at the whole human family. And we see, if we look honestly without judgment, uh, that w- there are actions and choices that we uh, do, make, in response to our experience and also in response to the world. And we see in the range of those actions and experiences, we see uh, both responses of love, of openness and connection, and also the opposite of uh, closeness, disconnection, apathy. And that's just normal and, and kind of honest. And so it's really, really important to say, meditation practice, we don't want it leading to apathy. We don't want that, you know. Um, in relationship to our life and our experiences, but also in relationship to the world. And sometimes people are concerned, and they've, they've said to me, in relationship to uh, oneself and, and the metta practice, well, if I give everybody this metta and the difficult person, won't I then become like a doormat, in the sense of everyone will just step on me? And actually, that does not happen. As I said, right going back to the beginning, there's a strength that comes spacious, soft strength. But we do not want practice, and certainly meta-practice, to be, you know, cocooned in this cuddly, uh, nice space, and then actually manifest a kind of docility or non-responsibility, non-responsiveness in in the world. I think it was last year, sometime, or earlier this year, I can't remember, um, Guy House received... uh, an inquiry from a young man who was, I, I think, a social science uh, undergraduate or something. Obviously very intelligent, couldn't have been that old. Um, and he proposed some research that he wanted to come to do at Guy House. And he called it, he was writing this research paper, I think, for his undergraduate degree, and it was called um, About Meditation Practice, and it was entitled Subjective Narcissism... <laughs> <laughs> Or selfless engagement, <laughs> and and I'll just read you some of his sort of um, abstract or whatever it's called when you write an academic paper, uh, investigating the, the social and political implications in a consumption-centric society. Because some social theory, apparently, he said, has criticised the social implications of. Uh, meditative, contemplative, subjective and introspective practices as being dangerously narcissistic, socially and politically pacifying, asocial, depoliticizing, 
something called desublimating, which I have no idea what it means, <laughs> and self-indulgent. And then the question was, how does the experience of meditation, retreat, extended contemplation, etc., fit into a consumption-oriented society in 21st century Britain? That's really interesting to me. <laughs> that really is interesting. There's been a lot of research on mindfulness in the brain and mindfulness and stress reduction and depression, which is great. What about all this stuff? What about that? These are young men, must be 20 or something. Really interesting. So I don't know what he found. I didn't have, unfortunately, the chance to meet with him, but I would like to actually give him a call and find out, you know. Um, I found something else along, about... There's someone called George Bernanos. I'm not quite sure who he is. I assume he's a writer, or was a writer. And he says, I have thought for a long time now that if, someday, the increasing efficiency for the technique of destruction finally causes our species to disappear from the earth, it will not be cruelty that will be responsible for our extinction, and still less, of course, the indignation that cruelty awakens and the reprisals and vengeance that it brings upon itself. Not that, but the docility, the lack of responsibility of the modern man, his base, subservient acceptance of every common decree. The horrors that we have seen, the still greater horrors we shall presently see, are not the sign that rebels, insubordinate, untamable men are increasing in number throughout the world but rather that there is a constant increase in the number of obedient, docile men. So it's a, you know, maybe it's a little judgmental, but uh, I think the point is, is clear and well made. And there are, for you know, anyone who's uh, in, in these areas, of course, that there's messages, uh, teachings that come to us through the centuries, through the millennia, actually, in the teachings of Jesus or Shantideva, a great Buddhist saint from the 8th century in India. And they are so radical, so deeply radical in their revisioning of what existence can be and is. And, and so there maybe is, uh, as much as there is beauty and, and uh, a lot of good stuff in society, there is the, the movement of this kind of apathy and disconnection. We see it in ourselves and in society, as well as everything that's beautiful. And as well, there's this deep, deep uh, message that reverberates through the centuries, this deep, deep kind of uh, invitation, this calling. And, you know, it's so radical if you really listen to what Jesus is saying or Shanti Dev or other teachers, it's so radical, it's so profound, so turning everything on its head. And because of that, it's not going to be that popular. But it's, there are voices that won't go away. They won't go away because they're so profound and they speak to the kind of deepest aspects of our humanity, the deepest threads of our humanity. So Shantideva, for, for, for instance, he talks about uh, the, the, the mindset of the Bodhisattva actually exchanging the priorities of the happiness of self and other. In other words, we usually move in the world with that my happiness is, is the priority, very natural and, and normal in a way, normal at least. And he's saying, what would it be to turn that on its head and actually start prioritizing the happiness of others over ourselves, or even at first equalizing. And then, and there's a passage, a beautiful text he has, and it says, and he's talking to himself, and he says, Mind, you must now understand you belong to others. You belong to others. Everything turned upside down. And so, in, in these questions, it's like, can we be interested in these questions? Uh, why, why does it happen sometimes that I don't act with love, that that somehow feels blocked, that uh, I don't seem to have a response of kindness and empathy and compassion. What's blocking that? So just as when we were doing the exercise and you see, oh, there's certain th- uh, things happen internally, externally, and that gets blocked, and to be interested in that. We could turn it around and say, how, how can I move towards living a life of love in as fully and, and deep a way as that might be? And of course, putting a question like that to, to all of us, and I, I'm putting it to myself as well, 
including all of us. And the inner critic can so easily get hold of a question like that. And it just becomes something like, oh, here's this thing and I'm, I'm useless and I have a closed heart and I always will and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> all right, okay. So maybe just sit the inner critic down by the side and it can yap away. And there's another part of the being. There's another part of the being. And maybe uh, that other part can get a little look in and a listen. And that other part, I, I think, in all human beings, longs, longs, there's a longing, a deep longing for a different uh, kind of opening and, and, a, and a sense of an intuition of a different kind of way of living in love. And of course, you know, it's every human being's right to say how much or how little I feel drawn to that. To, to what degree do I want to turn things upside down? No one can push us with that or make a choice or say you should do this or that. But there is this thread in us. There is this, this uh, hunger. And we see in the world that it's possible, that there is a possibility of uh, living with love. We see it in ourselves and we see it uh, around us and we've seen it through history. And some of it is quite extraordinary what you can, what we can witness uh, human beings, an extraordinary capacity of openness and uh, self-giving, outpouring of love. And some of you might, um, do you know who Viktor Frankl is? Yeah, it's a beautiful, if you ever uh, get the chance to read a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and it, it, he, the first half of it, he chronicles his time in Auschwitz concentration camp in, in the Second World War, uh, where he was interned, and he um, later became a psychologist. But he was reflecting on the whole thing, and beautiful passage. So he said, We who lived in concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. Just, you know, horrific conditions and you know, that sort of thing repeated through history. And yet somewhere in the human heart is this, is this extraordinary capacity. And sometimes it's accessible. And we see that possibility. And of course, it, you know, that's quite an extreme example. And there's much less. And recently I was teaching in Sheffield, and uh, the place was staying with um, one of the retreatants' uh, partner. And on her wall, she had, um, she was probably in her 50s or maybe 60s, I'm not sure. And on her wall, she had many, all kinds of stuff on her wall. And, and then this little section of photos, old black and white photos. And they were photos of her at, uh, at Greenham Common. And do you guys remember Greenham Common? And, I, you know, it's one of those things. That I remember that, you know, in the mid-'80s. And, and the, 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 all the sense of the beauty of that came, came on, this complete madness. The missiles and, you know, the uh, humanity m- madly... Uh, constructing mechanisms to blithely blow itself apart. And, and, and the women were the ones saying, stop this craziness. And putting themselves in a certain situation, just saying, no. So, <clears throat> you know, we get a sense of the beauty that's possible out of the heart, the, the beauty and, and the sacrifice of that and all the, the hassle of that camping there. Uh, and so it can be big and it can be small, you know, but there is this capacity that we have. And we see the opposite. We see the opposite. We see apathy. Apathy. And so there's another quote, uh, Edmund Burke. All that is needed for evil to succeed is that decent human beings do nothing. And we've seen that through, and if you think again back to the Holocaust and other situations around the world in history. What apathy? Where, 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 where did, what, ap- what are the roots of apathy? Now, sometimes it's fear, and if you think about something like the Holocaust, it was probably fear of, in this case, a large proportion of certain 
population and other populations actually afraid, of course afraid. And that manifests as a kind of uh, non-intervention, a non-voicing of something. But there are, there are other re- reasons, of course, other roots for our non, uh, non-opening, our, our, our closing of something. I read recently this, something called the Global Policy Forum Report. And this is from 2005, so it's a little bit out of date, and I don't know what the figures are, but it said, rich country, in 2005, rich countries give less than half the amount of aid they gave in the early 60s when they were far less affluent. And I read that, and I, I was just, and I'm not saying this is so, but I was wondering why, and I a little bit had the thought, and again, I don't know, but I a little bit had the thought, is that, does that, did that have something to do with actually giving aid as a kind of bulwark against the spread of communism and the so-called domino effect, etc.? In other words, the aid wasn't purely aid, it was, it was in the service of something else. And I don't know, maybe. But very easily our selfishness, our self-centeredness comes and blocks our love and our greed as well. And we were talking in one of the groups today, the, the perspective of the self-view, I'll come back to this later, but this perspective of the self-view, because it feels itself to be the ego, it's a separate thing in a vast and, and possibly threatening world, it can have very easily a sense of scarcity of there's not enough, and so get, 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 because there's not enough, and not really open to the the ramifications and the implications of my get, 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 because there's not enough for me on others. There's, um, I came across a book a while ago by uh, uh, the commander uh, of the armed forces in Rwanda, the UN armed forces that were uh, there to try and uh, make peace and keep peace uh, when the genocide broke broke out in Rwanda. His name's Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire, and he wrote uh, quite a shocking book about it all, about his reflections. Uh, and he, he actually had kind of a breakdown after the whole thing and felt like it, uh, it had failed for many reasons. And part of his healing, his own breakdown, was writing this book and writing his perspective on the whole experience. And, and he writes this passage, that mission, which was called uh, UNAMIR, U-N-A-M-I-R, that mission failed. I know intimately the cost in human lives of the inflexible UN Security Council mandate the penny-pinching financial management of the mission, the UN red tape, the political manipulations, and my own personal limitations. What I've come to realize as the root of it all, however, is the fundamental indifference of the world community to the plight of seven to eight million black Africans in a tiny country that had no strategic or resource value to any world power. The world watched and yet could not manage to find the political will to intervene. Engraved still in my brain is the judgment of a small group of bureaucrats who came to, quote, assess the situation in the first weeks of the genocide. And he he reports, they said, we will recommend to our governments not to intervene as the risks are high, and all that is here are humans. All that is here are humans. And um, that's saying it directly, but we know that this goes on. We know uh, where the, a lot of the decisions uh, may become geopolitical decisions in the world may be coming from. Painful, sad. <clears throat> and, and it's in a way doubly complicated these days because we have a, a globalized culture and a globalized information culture with the internet. So much information from around the world is available, so much possibilities of, of reaching out is available. With all that information there can be complete numbing on the TV and the internet, etc. 
It's, it's not easy, not easy. And of course, with all that, and with that uh, overload of information about the enormous suffering in, in our world, very easy to feel futile, uh, to feel a futility of trying to change the direction of anything or trying to change any of these huge uh, momentums that seem to be occurring in, in, in the modern culture, in the modern world, and climate change and all kinds of stuff. So that what, that's very common, futility, a sense of futility, a sense of despair and pointlessness. Um, I read, actually that, that thing about the cells that I read uh, the, the other day, that, that came from... Um, I have it here. It's what it actually is. Is this guy Paul Hawken, this entrepreneur, uh, writer, environmentalist? He was invited to give uh, what they call in, in the states a commencement address to a graduating class. It's really when uh, the undergraduates in university are graduating after three or four years, and then they all have a get their certificates and whatnot degrees together. And someone's usually invited to to speak, and so. If you ever come across it, I think it's the most beautiful, extraordinary, short speech. So, so beautiful. And so, there's a piece I want to read about this, but if you will indulge me, I just want to read a little bit before that. So, he begins, and remember, he's addressing 22-year-olds, probably, something like that. And he says, a little bit of introduction, he says, let's begin with the startling part. Class of 2009, you're going to have to figure out what it means to be a human being on earth at a time when every living system is declining and the rate of decline is accelerating. Kind of a mind-boggling situation, but not one peer-reviewed paper published in the last 30 years can refute that statement. Basically, civilization needs a new operating system, you are the programmers, and we need it within a few decades. He's, he's wonderful, he's absolutely, just so much, I love, I love this. And then he goes on, there is invisible writing on the back of the diploma you will receive. <laughs> and in case you didn't bring lemon juice to decode it, I can tell you what it says. You are brilliant and the earth is hiring. The earth couldn't afford to send recruiters or limos to your school. It sent you rain, sunsets, ripe cherries, night-blooming jasmine, and that unbelievably cute person you are dating. (laughs) Take the hint. This is the part I really wanted to read, but this is in in relation to futility. Here's the deal. Forget that this task of planet saving is not possible in the time required. Don't be put off by people who know what is not possible. Do what needs to be done and check to see if it was impossible only after you're done. (laughs) When asked if I am pessimistic or optimistic about the future, my answer is always the same. If you look at the science about what is happening on Earth and aren't pessimistic, you don't understand the data. But if you meet the people who are working to restore this Earth and the lives of the poor and you aren't optimistic, you haven't got a pulse. What I see everywhere in the world are ordinary people willing to confront despair, power and incalculable odds in order to restore some semblance of grace, justice, and beauty to this world. The poet Adrienne Rich wrote, So much has been destroyed. I have cast my lot with those who, age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. There could be no better description. Humanity is coalescing. It is reconstituting the world. And the action is taking place in schoolrooms, farms, jungles, villages, campuses, companies, refugee camps, deserts, fisheries and slums. You join a multitude of caring people. No one knows how many groups and organizations are working on the most salient issues of our day. Climate change, poverty, deforestation, peace water, hunger, conservation, human rights, and more. This is the largest movement the world has ever seen. Rather than control, it seeks connection. Rather than dominance, it strives to disperse concentrations of power. Like Mercy Corps, it works behind the scenes and gets the job done. Large as it is, no one knows the true size of this movement. It provides hope, 
support and meaning to billions of people in the world. Its clout resides in idea, not in force. It is made up of teachers, children, peasants, business people, rappers, organic farmers, nuns, artists, government workers, fisher folk, engineers, students, incorrigible writers, weeping Muslims, concerned mothers, poets, doctors without borders, grieving Christians, street musicians, etc. And if you have a religious bent, bodhisattvas and Buddhas or whatever you might like. So I'm reading that because one response to this futility is, and it's there, it's this sense of, yes, all this is happening and all this other stuff is happening and a sense of a great surge in the human spirit and, and all these connections uh, being made and the power of that, the kind of underground power of that. And with that, optimism. Optimism. About uh, I read you the wrong thing in the wrong order. That's all. Um, he gave an example of the abolitionist movement. That's uh, another part. Of it. I'll read it to you again. It's okay. uh, he's talking about the kindness of strangers. So there is this apathy, but there, also, there is also this this. Uh, This amazing thing that we witness in human beings of of uh, kindness of strangers. So this kindness of strangers has religious, even mythic origins and very specific 18th century roots. He talks about abolitionists, those who were trying to end the slave uh, trade. Abolitionists were the first people to create a national and global movement to defend the rights of those they did not know. Until that time, no group had filed a grievance except on behalf of itself. Uh, the founders of this movement were largely unknown, Granville Clark, Thomas Cl- Clarkson, Jos- Josiah Wedgwood, and their goal was ridiculous on the face of it. At that time, three out of four people in the world were enslaved. Enslaving each other was what human being- beings had done for ages, and the abolitionist movement was greeted with incredulity. Conservative spokesmen ridiculed the abolitionists as liberals, progressives, do-gooders, medalists, meddlers, and activists. They were told they would ruin the economy and drive England into poverty. But for the first time in history, a group of people organized themselves to help people they would never know, from whom they would never receive direct or indirect benefit. And today, tens of millions of people do this every day. And he goes on and relates it to what I was saying before about this mass movement. Another thing about the abolitionist movement is if you look at the history of it, it actually took 60 or 70 or 80 years to actually make an effect. And some of the people who started it didn't live to see the fruits of it. And so there's something about this. Giving myself to, to, to benefit others, I will never see them, I will never meet them, I will never get anything from them, whether that's people or, or parts of the earth. And having this long view, long view, and somehow it's not, it cannot be in that case about the limited self. It cannot be because the limited self is not getting anything out of it. So there's optimism. He's, he's a kind of voice of optimism, which is beautiful. But how might we have this sense of urgency without despair? Meeting the, 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 meeting the, the, enormity of the the suffering in the world with a sense of urgency in the heart engagement in the heart but without despair Uh, how can we have as human beings a love that keeps going no matter what and we call that equanimity it's an aspect of equanimity that it stays steady no matter what the love, the compassion stays steady so, and he, he, you know obviously very optimistic and very lovely other options if that optimism and at times it does not feel accessible probably for many people it does not feel accessible uh, 
this very we keep talking about this quality of buoyancy in the meta practice that we're trying to cultivate that one of the reasons is because buoyancy is another word for kind of equanimity if we're you know in the practice cultivating the sense of keeping the mind up and bright and it's still open and it's still sensitive and the heart is open and and uh, receptive but the consciousness is buoyant that means it won't sink when it meets uh, the suffering in the world. The compassion will be buoyant. And so why we keep saying the body, and it, is it possible to nurture that sense of well-being in the body? Because it brings long-term with practice this sense of buoyancy more and more. And that's not about suppressing anything. Again, if there's this flexibility in practice, then I can cultivate that well-being as a resource for me to keep me buoyant. And I can also at times go and hold and meet directly what is difficult. It's not, we're not in the business of, of suppressing. We're flexible. But, or rather, and, what else? What other options in the face of this uh, futility? What other options in, in, in order to keep this love really steady, no matter what? And that's really what I want to go into tonight. And it has to do with the, the Dharma teachings of emptiness. Emptiness, shunyata, emptiness. So how, how, how can we go into this? It's a huge subject. I just want to approach a little bit. We, let's go in, in relationship to what we've been doing a little bit. Let's consider anger, the opposite of loving kindness. When there's anger or judgmentalism, whatever, obviously we see the metta is less and the acts of loving kindness are, are less. It's clear also, if I just dwell on anger for a second, it's clear that anger is a problem in the world. It causes huge devastation and, 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 and wreaks havoc in the world. And yet it's complex, and Chris touched on this yesterday. We need our no. We need the, the strength to set boundaries and, and uh, be firm with that. And that can have the energy of anger. But the will, the, the desire to hurt another, to destroy, to... Uh, inflict pain or revenge on another, that is always going to be a problem, always going to be a problem and to cause suffering. To quote the Buddha, uh, anger with its poison source and fevered climax is murderously sweet. Almost like Shakespeare's. Uh, uh, But you get this sense, it's so seductive sometimes, murderously sweet, it has a poison source and there's a kind of climax to it all. We have to see that it brings suffering. It leads to suffering. Uh, and we see that even sometimes people say, well, I can't really get interested. I just feel a little irritated at this person or a little aversive. And yet see, there's suffering there. And so I have to be interested in, in, in cultivating the loving kindness. And the more sensitive I become, the more I'll be bothered by the, the, the suffering of that aversion and irritat- irritability. We have anger, and it moves in us sometimes, an aversion, irritability. And we have beautiful qualities. But we can see, with the movement of consciousness, how we reinforce habits of heart and mind. How easily we reinforce the habits of heart and mind. And with that, with those different habits, our happiness goes up and down. An angry, aversive, irritable state of mind is not a happy mind. A metaphor heart and mind is a happy one. And with that, and as I was touching on this morning, with that movement uh, between, say, aversion and love, we also notice the perception change. The perception of the world changes. And this is where the emptiness bit comes in. But uh, there's different aspects of this. So it's important to point out Again, we're not being apathetic or non-responsive. When we see injustice, either personally or in the world, it's not at all that we are, through meta, condoning certain actions. That's not at all what we're doing. Uh, it's rather that we are... Uh, it's, it, there's a place to pointing out certain actions are not okay, but we are not, or we're trying to prevent selves getting defined, either myself or yourself, in a stance of righteousness, or you are like this, you are evil, you, me, like that, and defining the self. That's where the problem comes. What happens is in certain states of mind, like 
the afflictive emotions, any afflictive emotion, any afflictive emotion brings with it a tendency for the perception to lock. Do you understand what I mean by that? It, it locks into place seeing self and other and the world in a certain way and, and it's kind of stuck in that and, and, the, and also the suffering of that. So there is something, you know, when working with a difficult person, can I focus on this person's good qualities? Can I be interested in, in, in affecting or encouraging a change in my perception? It's huge. So... As human beings, obviously, in, in our personal life, we get into difficulties with people at times. You know, we have arguments, we have fallings out and all, all that. Not, you know, normal, very normal. And when, when we're trying to work it out with someone, it's, it's, sometimes it's so hard uh, not to want to just tell the other person what's what. And we know that I should really listen to their half. <laughs> but it's so hard sometimes. The impulse, the fire, the burning, the pressure of the anger wants to get my stuff out. And yet, a lot of the healing will, will come from the half of, of willingness to listen and hear uh, the other half. And so sometimes it's good, I read a, a book about, it rec- about difficult conversations recently. It was said, see if you can when you're having a difficulty with someone, see if you can seek to have a learning conversation. That your actual, your intention for the conversation, rather than telling this person what's what and how you feel and what happened, etc., that you're actually seeking to learn something about them and about their point of view. And that's difficult. And that's, that's not always easy with the pressure and the heat of it. But that's where empathy comes in. And when empathy comes in, it starts to soften this locking, locking of perception. So people seem to us a certain way. And in a way, part of empathy is, what would it be to imagine myself inside this other person, inside their life, perhaps with their background, looking out from their eyes, from their experience, there's a beautiful phrase, it's like when we are trying to be empathic, or when we are empathic in fact, we're on a journey with a direction but no destination. In other words, I, I can never um, arrive at full, fully understanding you. And kind of having that sense of the openness of it is really, really helpful, hugely helpful. This is a little bit aside, but when, when there is a difficulty between two people, it's interesting. Um, usually, we are actually more interested in knowing that the other person is trying to understand us, trying to empathize, than in whether they have actually achieved that you know, place of uh, a certain arrival point or, go- or goal. That they're willing to struggle, to, to try um, that makes all the difference. Have you noticed this? When, when you, when, yeah. So, as a participant in a difficult conversation, it, it, it would actually, it, it would really be helpful. We can communicate, and in fact, we need to communicate if we want it to go well and heal. We need to communicate a sense that we're trying to, we're struggling to understand. And even if I don't, the, the, when, the, when the other person sees that you're actually trying, that's what makes a difference. That's what makes a huge difference. But the main point is that empathy has this capacity, this resonance that Chris was talking about a little bit yesterday, this resonance has the capacity to soften the locking of the perception. And reminding ourselves, uh, recognizing the complexity of another, the, the humanity of another person, when it feels like we're pigeonholing them, or they've done something, they are difficult, they are bad, or whatever it is. The malleability of all beings. We talked about the malleability of, of the mind and the heart. All beings' minds are malleable. And how we are all subject uh, of the subject of past and present conditioning. Someone was telling me a while ago, and he said, uh, when he was very young, 
I think two or le- less than three even, uh, he had a baby brother born, and and uh, and the brother was born with a disability, and very quickly because of different conditions and maybe not such skillful communication, he perceived it that it was his fault. That the very, you know, think the, the consciousness of a two, two and a half year old doesn't, can't really make, try struggling to make sense of things in a kind of practically pre-verbal way. And somehow absorbed, took on this understanding that somehow, somehow it was his fault that his brother was born disabled and uh, with that very quickly led to a sense of there must be something really wrong with me that I'm bad and internalized that very deeply and from that from that condition something else spun out and a sense of I'm bad therefore I don't deserve good attention but I know I need attention and I will get bad attention and and, and saw a pattern in the life of attention seeking in, in all the wrong ways and beginning to get conscious of that. And just knowing that these kind of things go on for people, this, this powerful stream of conditioning, and we might see a person, and we have no idea about the, the, the stream of unfolding conditioning that leads to certain. And, and in the present, seeing that begins to change that conditioning as well. To the degree that I can loosen the definition of self and other, the metta increases, the metta increases. And someone was telling me a while ago on retreat, and uh, I got into a very peaceful state of mind, and then noticed when she was in that very peaceful state of mind, actually relatively peaceful state of mind, there was no judgment of certain incidents or people that she would otherwise have judged. And this struck her. It's like, wow, that's interesting. Even, even trying to bring up, thinking of certain incidences and, in this case, politicians and other stuff, it, it, didn't, it, didn't, it was like dropping something in and it just didn't arise. It just didn't arise. And we were talking, well, what's the insight from that? Well, one is, she, in, or I, in this case, am not by nature, a judgmental person. In other words, that's not who I am, that's not myself. It depends on the condition of the mind at the moment. Do, do you see? Yeah. So the self-view of I'm judgmental, it cannot sustain anymore. It's loosened. But also, this person is bad, which or whatever it was, the judgment would have said, that also cannot sustain, because it wasn't there. This perception of the situation... Is, is not inherently real, we say. It depends. It depends on the heart and the mind and, and, and the state of the heart and the mind. So when there's metta, and some of you have been tasting this, when there's metta, there's a loosening. There's a loosening. And with that, a kind of spaciousness. That could be this big spaciousness that we were talking about today. But it's also the spaciousness of the loosening of definitions. Metta brings spaciousness. But also, spaciousness brings metta. Again, this double causality direction. Spaciousness meaning not just big physical space, space of awareness, but the the spaciousness of the loosening of these self-other definitions. So what does that imply? This is easy to say, yeah, yeah, but the the implications are are so profound it means that our perception of things, all things, is flexible, is malleable. And this is what emptiness, is a big part of what emptiness means. That there is no real way things are. I am, you are, it is. There is no fixed, real, independent of my perception, independent of my heart and mind, essence to things. Do, do you understand? Perception, the way things are, the way things seem, depends on my heart. It depends on my heart. And we can see this emptiness in many, many ways, but tonight I want to focus on the ways that can naturally evolve out of a meta practice. Um, but seeing em- emptiness in any, any way brings more meta. Rather than we have this word emptiness, and it sounds kind of bleak, etc. 
but actually as I see this emptiness, this non, uh, non-independent essence of things, it actually opens up the heart of love more. It opens that possibility up. When I see that my perception of other self situation is dependent on my heart, then my rigidity of definition must must begin to dissolve. And with that, the space and the metta increases. And there's a further piece. We could take it a little bit further here because with the mind state comes the perception of others. So in a certain, with aversion, I perceive someone was saying today, I felt really aversive, I walked into the hall and it looked a certain way, everyone looked a certain way, everything was annoying me. We know this, we know this as human beings. The opposite, and, and the same person at a different time, uh, in a very different mindset, I looked at this, I looked at that, I looked at them. Very different perception, what a swing. The range, the range of human consciousness, the range of the heart and the range of perception. So, mind state influences perception of others. Perception of others influences mind state, and we can use that. Meaning, if the perception of others is actually not a real independent thing, and if it's malleable, why don't I mold it in a certain direction? What if I were to find ways of seeing the, the beauty of others? And that's what that thing about wonder that we were the other day, in a way it gets a sense of this incredible existence of another being. I'm, in lots of different ways, um, shaping, uh, nurturing certain kinds of perceptions of others because that will influence my mind state. And then there's a positive feedback loop and they start influencing each other that way. Uh, whether it's aversion or whether it's love, it will still, they will still be feeding off each other. So if I have aversion, everyone looks like a bunch of... <laughs> I look out at a bunch of... <laughs> and how do I feel? What does that feed my mind? <laughs> and so it goes round. And the opposite is true. And if this is the case, why on earth wouldn't we feed the other? Why wouldn't we f- use that feedback loop? And if you know, if you've heard a little bit about uh, tantric practice, this is really part of the essence of tantric practice. Things are empty, let's, let's uh, incline a little bit towards a different kind of perception. So, another possible avenue of, of emptiness is, is that this self that seems so obvious, I'm sitting here, Harry is sitting there, you know, Annie is sitting there, whatever, it seems so obvious, I'm here, you're there. There's Harry's self, here's Rob's self. It seems so obvious. And I look a little deeper. Where is this self? You're looking, here's a body. Okay, where's the self? Am I my body? Where is it? Am I my, which part of my mind? Actually, when we go deeply, really deeply, meditatively looking, this self is unfindable, is unfindable. And it seems so obvious. It seems so obvious. I spend my whole life dictated to by the demands and needs and pressures and wants and neuroses of the self. And where is it, actually? It was a funny thing a while ago. I can't remember when it happened, but not too far from here, in one of the fields, and I, you know, I walk and I ride my bike and stuff, and um, uh, there was an open piece of ground and then just suddenly one day, it had been, it'd been there for, this is a piece of ground, there for, suddenly one day, this, two posts appeared with a gate between it, padlocked. <laughs> <laughs> and there was nothing else around it. <laughs> and I just, I went by, on my back, and I, and I went back to take a double take. <laughs> and I actually thought, that's a perfect metaphor for the self and, and, and what we do. <laughs> the nature of things the nature of things we could say to you slightly differently the nature of things is the true nature of things is actually open uh, what could we say relaxed spacious that's the true nature of things but when we um, believe so firmly in this solid uh, tight self we don't see that openness we don't see that spaciousness we don't see that uh, inseparability that unboundedness and instead, we construct gates and fences and, and, and we lock them, believing we're protecting something that's really real. 
believing that we're protecting something really. And for all the life of, of us, it feels so real. But that's actually delusion from a, from a deep dharmic point of view. It's actually delusion. We feel like we're protecting something that's really real, and it's not. It's not. So in the exercise today, um, well, over, over the days actually, um, the 231 that everyone hates. <laughs> <laughs> Um, except one person apparently who's the, that's <laughs> um, a couple of things and, and Chris was going into this t- today a little bit when there's not and I said this in, in relation to receiving when there's not enough self meta uh, there's an increase in the difficulty of, of contact um, and uh, there's an increase certainly in the sense of blockage of giving metta to others when there's not enough self and so there's not enough of this nourishment I was talking about going back to the, the, the opening talk and so Chris was experimenting saying, what if I make it 50-50 and don't abandon the love to myself uh, you know hugely important and, and still though I have a feeling that that still won't quite cut it at a certain level any time there is the belief in the self uh, there will be some sense of constriction around that and some sense of self-consciousness and some sense of blocking of the love. To the degree that the belief uh, of in that solidity of self goes down, or at the times when that begins to quieten, and the, the rigidity and the tightness and the self-definition, and that has a whole spectrum of how dissolved it can get, and the sense of emptiness of things. Um, fear drains out of the whole situation, completely drains out of the whole situation. And metta is there naturally, as a natural uh, quality of the openness that is allowed. Natural quality of the openness is allowed. Completely natural with, with the emptiness. So, the self, we say in Dharma language, the self is empty, it's not real self of myself and other self is not real in the way that it seems so real. It's actually not. That's an illusion and and delusion. We also say, taking this a little bit further, we say in the Dharma that not only ourselves empty, myself, yourself, but all phenomena are empty. All phenomena, all things, external things, the world of physical reality, but also internal things, emotions and sensations, all phenomena are empty. And again, there's many ways of seeing that, many ways of penetrating that understanding. But uh, we can also see this through the metta practice. The Buddha has a lovely discourse, I can't remember exactly where it is, and it's, it's the simile of the salt crystal. And he says, I'll paraphrase, he says something like, if you take uh, a little rock of salt, uh, yeah, a little rock crystal, salt crystal, and you take that and you put it in a glass of water and then you drink that water, it's going to taste very salty, very unpleasant. But if you take that salt crystal and you drop it in a, fre- a big freshwater lake and then you drink some of the water from the lake, you barely notice it. You barely notice it. He said, just so uh, is it when the, when the heart becomes immeasurable and the heart becomes immeasurable, that which is painful from the past, in the body, in, in the heart, in the mind, uh, old karma, so-called, all that stuff becomes almost as if it barely is there. Almost as if it's barely there. And there's different ways in which the, the heart can become, the, the consciousness can become immeasurable. There's many different ways. So metta is one of them, what we've been doing today with this spaciousness. But it begins affecting our very, again, perception of phenomena, perception of the world, both inner and outer. Uh, we can grow in immeasurability through spaciousness, through metta, through compassion, through joy, through equanimity. Um, through non-grasping. Basically, basically, immeasurability is allowed through non-grasping. The less we grasp, the more immeasurable the consciousness becomes. Uh, and so again, this business, oh, well, isn't this real? Maybe I'm suppressing something. And I, I really want to respect that 
aspect of our psychology, like I was talking about a couple of nights ago. And not uh, there's an impo- huge importance for you know grappling with what's difficult, meeting it directly, not running away from it. And yet there's a whole other level of truth. This is not suppression. All I'm doing is opening and non-grasping, and things begin just like the salt crystal, dissolving and barely making that impact. So we say, what's the real thing? What's the real taste of this? Empty, empty, without without an independent reality, independent of the heart. <clears throat> and then today, as well, we were talking about, uh, or in the group sometimes, the possibility of when, when the metta goes to all beings, this kind of uni- huge space of universal love opening up. And almost it being non-personal. Love seems to pervade the cosmos, seems to pervade space in a, in a boundless and infinite way. Very beautiful, very beautiful. Uh, very possible for us as human beings to open to that kind of mystical perception. So it, it is an opening, a change of perception that, that is kind of mystical. And that can actually begin to go on its own journey. So there is this space of love at first that seems to hold everything, and as it gets even deeper for a dedicated practitioner, sometimes people not even on retreat, not even meditators occasionally open to this, everything begins to seem like to be perceived as if it's an expression of love. Uh, The true nature of all things, all things, even solid things, their true nature somehow mystically is love. And this is a a real palpable perception for people that's possible. And someone might hear that and say, well, that's not Buddhism, or whatever. But uh, there... There is something here about how healing and how helpful and how useful it is to open up. And some of you today have even touched a little bit of this, or other times on different retreats, etc. And how uh, immense the power of that is for our own healing and, and for what we then manifest in the world. And actually, and I don't have time to go into this, but in some way it's actually a truer perception, we could say. It's more real I would say, at some level, it's more real than the reality that maybe six billion people would agree on, a kind of scientific material, materialist reality. I don't have time to get into that. With with practice, it is possible, and, and even just through meta practice, just through meta practice, beginning to see everything is empty in this way. Begin to see the different ways that understanding evolves. All things are empty. All things. When I begin to see that, as I begin to see that, it's like I begin to see the beauty then in all things through their emptiness. And with that, affection and care are natural. They're natural uh, responses to that emptiness and that beauty. The perceptions that go with our non-love, you know, even if it's not particularly angry or irritable, it's just a little bit me. Those kind of perceptions, in a way, they seem so real, but all that's the case is that they're habitual. It's only that they're habitual. It's not that they're real. The perceptions of non-love, of this or that being irritating or a problem or whatever. And they're actually not based on reality. Um, there was a Tibetan teacher from a while ago. He must be dead by now. He was a disciple of the great, great Tibetan teacher called Mipam Rinpoche, who died in 1912. And this guy's name is Kroshal Jomdor. He talks about this, what happens as we go deeper and deeper in the past. I'm kind of just painting a picture, if you like, or, or a, a possibility that can unfold through this practice. It says, practicing the path is like purifying a defect of the eyes, for instance, removing a cataract, in that purifying the subject stains, meaning the stains of, of the heart, of consciousness, likewise purifies the object. Internally, when the subject, the heart, is purified of stains, externally, there is no object that is not purified. And so we talk in some traditions about the purified conventional perception 
And what does that mean? It means that with all this unfolding, the possibility is that little by little, perhaps, more and more, the world of things we see, empty, somehow magical even, somehow perfect, somehow perfect in, in, a, in a magical way in that emptiness, somehow luminous, numinous. And in some traditions, the Zogchen tradition, for instance, talk about divine appearances, that the world becomes a realm of divine appearances. This is a certain language, but this is what it's pointing to. And so go back to the opening talk, and some who say, metta's a baby practice. And, and it can lead all the way to that. And actually what's happening is metta is leading us to see more in harmony with reality, as I said in the talk. And unkindness, interestingly, uh, feelings of unkindness, perceptions of unkindness, are actually, they cannot sustain in the light of truth. They cannot sustain in the light of deep truth. But love can. Love can. With all this, uh, as I'm just painting a picture of what might be possible for what is possible for us, uh, the understanding of emptiness, the perception of emptiness grows. And with that, this, uh, it becomes easier to love in a way that lasts. I was talking about to, to sustain that love because of the perception of emptiness. And with that, this what some would call divine appearances. And again, instead of a negative or an unpleasant feedback loop, you get a lovely feedback loop. The more the world appears magical, divine, empty, luminous, the easier it is to love. And that goes round. And the more empty it is, the easier it is to sustain without the f- sinking into the futility and the despair or the apathy. So basically, in other words, all this deep insight that comes from metta practice brings equanimity with our compassion and engagement, engagement, the possibility of engagement. There's a lovely poem by uh, Rumi, the mystical... Are you guys still okay? Okay. There's a lovely poem by Rumi, the, the, the mystical Sufi poet, and he says, Essence is emptiness. Everything else accidental. Emptiness brings peace to your loving. Everything else, dis-ease. In this world of trickery, emptiness is what your soul wants. Emptiness brings peace to your loving. And emptiness allows a, a kind of radical, radical loving kindness. And so, so in some traditions, again, going back to Shanti Day, we're talking about exchanging self another, which really means exchanging the priority of my happiness over your happiness. And that seems such a hard to think of that outside of the realm of that must be really unhealthy psychologically and codependence and all this stuff. But when I see the emptiness of things, I can take this. I'll take, like I was saying throughout this morning, it's like I have some difficulty, I have some pain in the body. I'll take it. I'll take it because I want you to have the good stuff. And what makes me able to take it? Because I feel it's empty. I know it's empty. It's nothing. In essence, it's nothing. So I can take it. My capacity to take on, to sacrifice, to take on what is difficult so that you are unburdened begins to get huge and actually eventually even bottomless. Bottomless. There's this possibility through the emptiness opening up of of radical love becoming possible. Not not apathy, not at all apathy. And we get, uh, if, if you know, we want to and we get interested in this, we get more skillful at sort of navigating all this. Remember at one point I was talking about, well, there's, you can give the meta to a narrative self, myself or others, the narrative self, the self of my journey and story, the self of my body and being, very simply, the self of a dropping of definition, a dropping of the selfing, either in me or the other or both. A self of emptiness, the non-self. And in a way, uh, we can let each of those places on that spectrum be the source of, of, of metta. And there's a different flavor of metta, perhaps we could say, with each. And that all becomes kind of our playground. We can move on that spectrum.
And it's all good. It's not to say that we say, well, I've had a glimpse of this oneness or this, this huge, mystical, universal, impersonal love in the cosmos. That's the only reality, or that I always must be that. It's not that as human beings. We have this range, and, and all of it is beautiful, and all of it is human. Now, just to finish, so some, another implication of all this is actually if we reflect that practice long-term, well, actually from the beginning, from the beginning practice, practice is a journey of removing, we could say, the veils of delusion. And what does that mean? It means the delusion that things exist in a real independent way, independent of my heart and my mind and my perception. Uh, in other words, we, we begin to understand emptiness more and more. We're removing this veil of delusion. And as we do that, the love increases automatically, organically. And so, and we've said this before a little bit, is it really that I'm developing metta? Like I said, I'm puffing and puffing and... and <laughs> come on, come on, almost got it, you know. I mean... Let's be honest, sometimes it feels that way. And sometimes it is that way, but is that really what we're doing at the deeper level? Or are we allowing metta, unveiling metta, if you like, something that is natural, or natural, what we might call our Buddha potential or our Buddha nature? To the degree that we see the self, others, and phenomena are, are empty, to that degree it reveals this, it reveals the world as, as luminous as empty and as pure, somehow pure and perfect. And with that, there's a natural loving kindness, natural metta, natural compassion, and a natural shedding of the habit of uh, seeing and, and living from the me first, me first, me first. And, you know, gradually, this is, all this is very gradual. I'm talking about gradual possibilities. Gradually over time, uh, we, we begin, there's a possibility of becoming more steady with that even, and actually living a bit more from that understanding. So, I'm not sure if that sounds far-fetched or not, but I, what I want to say is it's really, really available, and it's really possible and this practice, which we've just tasted together for a few days, this, this is the direction of possibility here. And it's there for us, if, if it's something we want and we feel called to explore. The, as I said, right going back to the opening talk, the possibilities are usually w- way more for us than we almost dare to uh, conceive for ourselves. And it's there, and it's a very real possibility, and there are people in this hall right now who... who uh, through long dedication to practice, etc., uh, have experienced what I'm talking about. It's possible for us as human beings, it's possible for us as practitioners. And it, this longing that we have, something in that, to whatever degree, a different possibility for the heart, a different possibility for the life, it is there for us. It's definitely there. And we, we walk down that path as far as we want to walk, and that's up to us. But it's there. Shall we have some quiet together? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.